0: Morning, everybody. Love looking out and seeing all your faces. It seems like the room is tilted and everybody just shifted this way. There's plenty of open seating over here. I feel like that area is quarantined or something. It's kind of yes, Pastor Gabe, sit there. She's gonna spread out. All right. Anyway, hey, glad to see you guys here. Um, just what a what an amazing thing that God is doing. Um, Pastor Gabe was not wrong when she said, we're going to look back on this and just look at how amazing it is. And here's the cool thing about it is that everything that God does to bless one person is not just the one thing we see with our eyes. There's always fives and tens and twenties and just ripples that go out forever of ways that people uh, are being blessed above and beyond. And we have so many testimonies already without even hearing your end of it on how this thing that God is doing among this church is just blessing us, we know that there are stories that we haven't even heard yet, and we've already got enough to fill a book. It's, it's incredible, and we're just so thankful to be here. I'm thankful that you guys are here and you guys out there online. Um, just love the opportunity to get to bring the word to you today. We're in the Gospel of Mark, still so if you've been a while, I know some of our friends, it's been a while since, yes, we're still in Mark. We're in week 31. We are well past the halfway point, though. So, um, but I hope you're enjoying, Mark. And It's not like when we were in Job and I said we're at the halfway and people are like, yay, we want to be out of Job so bad. Mark, there's so much in Mark. I just love it. Um, Jesus, the servant Messiah, we're calling it. It's all about humility and service, which is not at all what they expected a Messiah to be. When we think about a king, when we think about a Messiah, it, it is not somebody who's coming to serve in humility. That's just not where our mind usually goes. But that is exactly what Jesus is trying to teach us, and Mark's gospel is all about that. And the message today is very much the same. It's going to be a difficult message, so I, want to, I don't want to use the word apologize I never apologize for bringing the Word of the Lord, but this could be a difficult message. It could be convicting, and I am going to be in some of your living rooms and I just want to let you know i 'm doing it in love i 'm trying to bring truth so if that ends up being you, talk to me afterward because this is not this is all from my heart. Last week, when we were teaching last week we we're in uh, we 're in mark nine we 're about fourteen through twenty nine or so And we were talking about how uh, Jesus was basically rebuking his disciples. He had come down from the mountain after this amazing transfiguration that had happened. And his disciples were were in an argument essentially with the crowd and with some of the Pharisees about, about why couldn't you heal this man? Why couldn't you drive the demon out of this boy that needed it? And Jesus essentially rebukes them saying, look, it's because of your meager faith. I would say it not essentially rebukes them. That's pretty much a rebuke if Jesus says, you can't do it because of your meager faith. And we find out that meager faith really is a result of their not seeking direction from him on a, on a case-by-case, time-by-time basis. With us, we'd say seeking the Holy Spirit, but they just were going on what they had seen. This is how we saw it happen. This is even how we've done it before We're going to do it again. But in this case, it doesn't work. And Jesus is telling him, look, the only way you're ever going to be able to continue doing miracles in my name, having the power in the kingdom that you should have is if you stay plugged into me. If you stay seeking my heart, if you stay listening to the Holy Spirit, that's how that's going to happen. It can't just be we've seen it done, so we're going to do it again because it didn't work. So that's where we are. And so I hope That you're hungry this morning, because this is a meaty section that we're about to go through. It's a difficult section to kind of parse and figure out how it puts together. Um, But what I love to do, I love taking sections of Scripture that sometimes seem a little disconnected and finding that thread that comes through because it's telling a story. And it's telling a story that we're supposed to learn from. So my prayer is that we would have exactly that happen today. So let's jump into it. We're in Mark chapter 9. Verses 30 through 50. Okay, Mark 9, 30 through 50. So the very first scripture, Mark 9, verse 30. And from there, they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. So remember, when it says there, the the there is, they're up in the area of Caesarea Philippi, way up north, uh, way up north of the Galilee region, pretty far away actually, in an area called Mount Hermon. And they leave there. And they head south. They're walking south back towards the Galilee region. Kind of trying to keep a low profile at this point. This is kind of a shift um, between performing those, those miracles and that type of a ministry to now he's marching to Jerusalem with his disciples to really fulfill his destiny. But this is also a time of amping up the teaching. For his disciples, because he knows time is drawing short. His time with them is coming to an end. So he's really feeling, and we can kind of feel that through scripture, feeling that urgency like, man, there's so much to teach you guys, and I need you to get it. That's kind of the, 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 the uh, feeling that's going through this section right here. I was telling the the service this morning, one of my prayers, one of the things I've been praying to God is, hey, when we move to this new building, it's 10 miles to the west, still in Littleton, 10 miles to the west, and by car, it's just 10 minutes, and I'm praying about like, God, I I hope everyone will come with us. I hope nobody says, that's just too far, I'm not going anymore. And then I see scriptures like this, where Jesus and his disciples are walking from Caesarea Philippi down to the Galilee. And they walked up there just to do some ministry. Okay, that's 20 plus miles that he said, hey, let's go do ministry up there. So they walk up there and do it. And then, let's go do ministry down there. And they walk down there. They'll put in hundreds and hundreds of miles walking all over the Galilee to do the ministry. And that's not even counting the, the disciples that went out And doing mission work afterwards, Paul and Philip and all those traveling all over the place, thousands of miles in some cases, rarely ever even so much on the back of a donkey, they walked it. So I'm like, okay, unless anybody here is walking that extra 10 miles, if you are, see me, I'll give you a ride. Most of us have cars, and I I just know know that's not going to be an issue. But let's get back to the scripture here. On the way, as they're walking, Jesus again knows that time is kind of getting short, so he's got to make sure that they have a firm grasp on what he's trying to teach him. Mark 9, 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, there's no ambiguity here. This is flat, straight out. The Son of Man is to be handed over to men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Now, that's the second time in a very short period of time that he has explicitly told them what's going to happen. Remember, last was just the end of Mark chapter 8, where he says, he must suffer and be rejected and be killed, and after three days rise from the dead. He's not being cagey here. He's telling them exactly what's going to happen. But Mark 9.32 tells us the result of this, but they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So even after, like, God, I'm not telling you, metaphors, and, and, and this isn't a parable anymore. I'm telling you exactly what's going to happen, and they still didn't understand, but I like this part, the last part, and they were afraid to ask him. Those of you who have kids, how many times have you heard, or maybe you've done it, like, I don't know, but why don't you go ask mom? I'm not asking, you go ask. What did she say again? I'm not going to go ask. It's kind of like you just picture the disciples going back and forth with that kind of a, a, of a dynamic there. But last time, if you remember, when Jesus said that, they didn't get it then either. Specifically, Peter didn't get it. Because remember, Peter said, no, there's, there's got to be another way. We'll never let that happen. And Jesus ends up rebuking Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan. So that's, <laughs> that's probably why they didn't want to ask for clarification. <laughs> remember last time Peter got it wrong and was called Satan? Mm-hmm. We're just going to try and figure this out on our own. So they're coming down. They arrive back in the Galilee for a short rest, but again, more teaching. Jesus is not going to let up the throttle on teaching at this point. Mark 9.33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? So Capernaum, this may be Peter's house. We don't know for sure. They knew because it said the house so it was a well-known place. We don't know in Scripture, and it doesn't really matter, but they're back in Capernaum. What I love, though, what were you discussing on the way? Again, if you have kids, if you've ever been on a road trip, the kids in the back, they're arguing or they're talking about something. You could ignore it for a while. But at some point, you're like, what is the problem? What are you guys talking about? I kind of picture that's what's going on with Jesus here. Like, and, and Jesus knew, but he's asking them, what are you talking about? Mark nine thirty four. this is where the humanity of this whole thing gets in. But they kept silent. Like, I'm not telling him. You tell him. For on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Can you imagine how that conversation would go over with Jesus? So just imagine this scene. Again, going all the way back to the transfiguration. Remember, James, Peter, and John had witnessed that transfiguration. And Jesus told them, don't do not tell anyone what you've seen human nature you'd go back down to the other nine and number one you'd be dying to tell them but you'd also be going like it was so cool but I can't tell you is there any other thing that would be more enticing like I have to know tell us what happened I would but Jesus said I can't can you, Matt, every time that went back and forth, they'd be getting a little bit more irritated and a little bit more razzing James, Peter, and John about what was going on, about being teacher's pet and all these sorts of things. I could just picture that dynamic, but even more. Hey Gabe, could you give me a Kleenex? Um, what it really proved though, okay. give me a project. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry guys. Anybody else dealing with allergies and stuff right now? Man. So, all right. So, anyway, here's here's what it does. It the fact that they're that they're arguing with each other about this, it really just proves that they haven't really understood Jesus and his teaching on humility and servitude. And even more than that, maybe, even more telling is the fact that he's saying, look, I'm about to die. And, and that must have just sailed over their heads. Or they're in such denial that they're arguing about who's the greatest while he is just telling them that he's going to be given up. So it's time for summer school. It's time for a little remedial teaching because they don't, they're running out of time here. So Jesus sits down on a mat which in that culture, in the Hebrew culture, that's what a rabbi did. A rabbi would sit down on a mat, and that would signify to them, we're about to teach. This is no more just we're chatting. This is no more peer level. This is now teacher, student. I need you to listen. That act right there conveyed all of that stuff to them. Mark nine thirty-five. and sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Okay again very straightforward but they had all just been arguing about who's the greatest and who wants to be first that's what they wanted and that's what their culture said their culture was like hey if you want to be important you need to attain status you need to attain riches position a title you need to and we know they were jockeying for title all the time that's their culture and that's kind of what was expected out of them but Jesus is saying this is not the same business as usual anymore. The kingdom is different, and you're going to have to grasp that it's different. So he's trying to illustrate this point. And so what he does, Mark nine thirty six, and he took a child and placed him among them. And taking him in his arms, taking the child, he said to them, okay, side note here, in our culture today, children have an elevated status. Almost to the point where in many households, the children run the household. That's not what it was back here. Back here in this time, children were just a step above property. Okay, You had more children because that would allow you to do more work on your farm. That would allow you to tend more sheep to do more work. They were workers in your tribe. And and yes, they weren't exactly property. They loved their children but they had nowhere near the same status. And so when Jesus is taking this child in his arms, and he says this, Mark 9, 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So again, this child, which was just like, why? You know, they probably didn't even pay attention to this child. This child's running around. They didn't give him two seconds worth of of attention and here Jesus is saying this child is important. Pay attention here. This child was just this perfect example of what Jesus was trying to teach them. Believers have to humble themselves. They have to set aside any pretense. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest and I don't know if they were looking to fill out a resume like give me a title Jesus I want I want a title. They're looking for that. This child this child just knew Jesus is a pretty cool guy. I'm just going to hang out with him. I'm just going to be with Jesus. He had no pretense of delusions of grandeur, who he was and what he was and how important he was to Jesus and what he could do for Jesus. He just knew Jesus is pretty cool and I want to hang out with him. So when he's sitting on his lap, that is a perfect example. And you have to feel for Jesus as he's trying to teach these guys and get it through their thick heads that their job is to serve with humility, not lord over, not be greatest, not be better than, but to serve with humility. And we know that they're struggling with this even still because John, John is probably, remember when, when Peter said during a transfiguration, he's like, uh, I don't know what to say, but let's just build three tabernacles for all of you guys. He didn't know what to say. So he just blurted something out. I think John is doing the very same thing here. He's trying to show him, Jesus, okay, but we are so loyal to you. Mark nine thirty-eight. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Like, how does that even fit with what Jesus was just teaching them? Like, you have to humble yourselves. okay. Yeah, we have to humble ourselves. We saw somebody who wasn't doing it like we do, so we tried to stop him. Like that, Jesus is kind of like, that, you still don't get it. He's in the middle of teaching them the lesson, and they still don't get it, because that's a prideful statement. That's a prideful statement. Here's a man who's doing ministry, but he's not doing it the way we do it, or he's not a part of our in crowd, so we stopped him we made him quit. That's clearly not what Jesus has in mind. It's hard to blame them. It's easy to blame them for being thick-headed, but we know for a fact that they are simply working through all these things in their flesh. They've been with Jesus. They've listened to Jesus's teaching, but they are trying to reconcile these very difficult lessons just in their fleshly minds. They did not have the Holy Spirit yet, which we have to help us understand and discern what Scripture really is trying to tell us. They didn't have that. So they're trying to reconcile it in their minds. And we know that's excuse me, that's the case because Luke tells us, Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus reappears back to the disciples. And he says this, Luke 24, 44 and 45. Now he said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Like, remember all the things I taught you? That all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's what he's talking about, that I'm going to be handed over to to men to, to be killed and crucified. Verse 45 says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So without that they're just operating in their flesh and this is why it's such a hard lesson to get into their heads. Whenever we find that a lesson that the Lord's trying to teach us is hard to get into our heads, maybe we're operating in the flesh because it doesn't reconcile with what we think we know. Maybe we need to speak the spirit, seek the spirit on having him illuminate what that means because this is an example of the of the disciples doing just that. They walked with him, they they had camp with him. They ate with him. They heard his teaching all the time. They were as immersed in Jesus as they could possibly be and still working out of their flesh. It wasn't getting in. So John <clears throat> John thinks that Jesus is probably going to praise him for shutting down this guy because he's casting out demons, but he's not a part of our thing. He's doing ministry. He's doing all that, but he's not a part of our group. And he's not a follower of yours, Jesus, because he's not walking around here. John probably thinks it's going to go that way, but he finds himself rebuked again. Mark 9, 39. But Jesus said, do not hinder him. Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. So this man was doing ministry in the name of Jesus. He was driving out demons in the name of Jesus. He just wasn't a part of their inner circle. The disciples are trying to make that into a big thing. Well, he doesn't camp with us. He hasn't heard your teaching directly. He's not one of us. So we should stop him, right? And Jesus is going, no, he's doing things in my name. And maybe he's not doing them the way we would do it. Maybe he's not doing any of it the way we are. But the result is the same. The result is the power because he's doing it in my name. Jesus is trying to get that across to him. Mark 9:40, 40, 41. For the one who is not against us, listen to this, verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. When we look at denominational splits, when we look at church splits, I have spoken to so many churches, so many so many pastors, so many elders in churches who had 20 or 30 people in their whole congregation, but they couldn't agree on the way they do baptism, or they couldn't agree on how loud the worship music should be, or what type the worship music should be, or, or how we do you know, baptisms, how we do that, how we do communion, when we do communion. They can't agree, so they split. And so many denominations are all about, well, we're better than them because we do it differently. They're better than them because they do it more like we do it. All this judging back and forth, and Jesus just boils it down to this. For the one who is not against us is for us. Very, very simple. No matter how you do it, maybe there's a better way, maybe there's a different way, but if you're not against him, you're for him. And That's the point that he's trying to get across here. And it can be hard to know the difference. There are so many great churches out there. There are so many great um, teachers out there. there. There are so many great evangelists going around the country. Um, there's just so much amazing ministry that's happening. But there's also that other side some that's just a little off, some that's just a little bit misleading. And so we wonder how we know the difference between who is truly for him and is, who is against him. And John gives us actually later in 1 John gives us a snapshot on how this looks. John, 1 John 4, 1 to 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 2 By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now is already in the world. Here's how that works in reality. If you're wondering if someone, a teacher or anything like that, is for Christ or not, ask if they'll confess Jesus. Just ask them flat out or watch their messages if you can't speak to them perfectly. Is he saying this is done through the power of Jesus? Jesus Christ is Lord, given on the cross for our sins and resurrected on the third day. That's the Jesus that we serve. That's the Jesus that I serve. If they confess that, then yes, then they're for him. And you can parse out whether I'm not sure the theology is exactly correct here or not, but they are for him. But if they hedge their bets, if they go, "No, nah, well, you know, Jesus is Jesus was a really good guy and he's got some really great things to say and he was certainly a good prophet." And that's where they stop, and they're not willing to take that step to say, Jesus is Lord. Be careful. That can be the spirit of the Antichrist or a false prophet. It seems very straightforward, but you can ask, is Jesus Christ Lord and Savior? Was he resurrected on the third day? You can ask these questions, and if they're unwilling to answer them directly, be careful. Just be careful. Side note on that, some people are just very prone to claiming that if you're not from the right church, the right denomination, the right culture overall, you can't possibly be doing it right. You can't do it right unless you have some secret that we have. Just remember Mark 940, the next time you're tempted to think that way, the one who is not for us, the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus said it just like that. So here's where Jesus now, he takes all that just to see if they're getting it. He's trying to make this point as clear as he possibly can, as clear as crystal. Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones, let me pause right there, the little ones, he's got the child in his arms. Now, he's talking about the child, but he's more figuratively talking about anyone who is new in their faith. Okay, little ones even includes the man who was driving out demons in Jesus' name, He's doing it. He believes in me. He confesses my name. He's doing things in my power. Does he know all the ins and outs and every little detail that I've been teaching you guys? No. But he's doing things in my name. That's the little ones that he's talking about here. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in, who believe in me to sin, it is better for him if a heavy millstone is hung around his neck and he is thrown into the sea. Anybody here know what a millstone is? Anybody have one in your kitchen? Probably not, right? Here, when he's talking about millstone, this is what he's talking about. Okay, sorry, it's a kind of a grainy picture, but you get the idea. That millstone can weigh two, 3,000 pounds. So this is not something that's just going to be a burden to drag through life. If you have that around your neck and you're thrown in the sea, you're done. Okay, and those still exist here today. That's the imagery of a millstone that he's talking about here. And what he's saying is causing someone who is new and fresh in their faith to stumble is a sin for which there is no excuse. There is no excuse. And he goes on to illustrate that again and again. Mark nine forty three, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. He's saying if you can't, take and, if you can't stop grabbing and taking a hold of things that you shouldn't, just cut your hands off because that's no excuse because you know better. And if your hand, which somehow you can't control your hand, is causing this, you can't blame your hand, just cut it off. It's better to deny yourself earthly satisfaction that word hell, by the way, when it says hell, that he's talking about a place, an actual place that they would have known, but it's called Gehenna. That's how it actually translates in, in their language. Gehenna, also sometimes referred to as the Lake of Fire, is an actual valley. It's an actual place that's kind of to the southwest of Jerusalem. And the interesting thing is that it is... It's been burning. It's been a problem, uh, even in Jesus' time, for 1,000 years before that, even all the way back to the, the time of Ahaz. And Ahaz actually sacrificed his own children there. Gehenna is a valley, and it's a valley that was pretty much perpetually burning. You ever seen a trash heap? Here's just, a, just an image of a burning trash heap to just kind of get a little picture in your head. Now, that's just a small little pile of trash. Picture an entire valley just filled with, with centuries of garbage and refuse, just burning, stinking, eternally burning. It pretty much just burned and smoldered all the time. That's Gehenna. In, now, in ancient times, it was a dumping ground. They would dump sewage and trash and dead animals, dead people, all of that would get dumped in there, and it would just continually burn. And the parts that weren't burning were always full of maggots and worms just feeding on the dead bodies and feeding on... Sounds horrific, does it not? Sounds like hell, doesn't it? That's the imagery that they're trying to come on. Jeremiah 31 calls it the valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown. Also in 31, he, said, he reminds us it's places where pagan kings sacrificed children to Molech. Okay, so it's been going on forever. Isaiah 30 calls it a stream of burning sulfur. This is an unpleasant place. In fact, Jewish tradition tells us that between 2 and 3 million Jews were killed and dumped in there during the reign of Rome. 2 and 3 million. That is not a good place. It's still there. It's a real place. It's still there. It's no longer burning. In fact, they call it the Valley of Hinnom now, and here's what it looks like. It's all those houses going up the side there. That's a part of Jerusalem, and that big valley right there. So just picture that whole thing. And it actually stretches for another, almost a mile down this way. Imagine that, just filled with burning trash and bodies and sewage, just eternally burning and smoldering. When Jesus says it's better that you're thrown into that, that's what he's talking about. The disciples would have been squirming a little bit right now, don't you think? Now he goes on. Let me make a couple of quick notes here, just on Bible translations. Depending on your version, if you're following along, you may note that there's no verse 44. In fact, there's no verse 44. There's no verse 46, unless you have the King James, which they include it, and some include it in brackets. The reason is because 44 and 46 actually repeat the same thing that's said again in 48, which we'll get there in a second. But I just want to tell you that if you see that, it's, it's a, a thing specific mostly to the King James translation. If you look at the Greek manuscripts, it, doesn't, it says the same phrase three times. It doesn't in the Greek. I just want to point that out because it matters sometimes in those translational things. But Jesus goes on teaching about excuse for sin. Uh, If any of you are looking for a loophole that he's about to say, now here's the only legitimate excuse for sin. You're not going to hear it. Mark 9, 45. And if your foot is causing you to sin, remember you just talked about your hands. If your foot's causing you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life without a foot than having your two feet and be thrown into hell. Jesus is very explicit. He doesn't say, and go to a bad place. He just explicitly says, then go to hell. In other words, he's saying if you can't stop walking yourself into situations that are causing you to sin, cut your feet off. Don't blame your feet. Again, we go to verse 46. There's no, there's no 46. Jesus then goes on and says, even looking at things that you shouldn't can't be blamed on what you might call, oh, he's just got a wandering eye. Ever heard that? There's no excuse for that. Mark nine forty-seven. and if your eye is causing you to sin. Throw it away. Some translations say gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be thrown into hell. Again, Jesus mentions the word hell explicitly more times than anyone else in all of New Testament scripture. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't exist. He doesn't pretend like that's our reward for sin. It's very much real and it's very much there. Now, here is where Jesus actually reminds them of what the prophet Isaiah said about Gehenna. Mark 9, 48. And Jesus says this, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not extinguished. He's quoting from Isaiah 66. Those other two verses I told you about, they just repeat that, kind of a, of a literary device to just make sure that that idea gets driven home. Isaiah 66, 24 says, then they will go out and look at the corpses of the people who have rebelled against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be extinguished, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. That's imagery from, from all the bodies dumped into Gehenna, some that are a result of battleground injuries. What he's saying here is the fire's not going to go out, and the worms are going to continue to crawl through your rotting corpse. That's a horrible image, Right? That's exactly what he's saying, though, and there's no way to make that soft and go around it. This is a prophetic vision about the contrast between heaven or the new Jerusalem and hell, the righteous and the unrighteous, the saved and the unsaved. Interesting, if you read that section in Isaiah, it points to the idea that they will be separated but very much aware of each other's existence. Study Isaiah 66 if you want to learn more about that. Again, in verse 48, it says, sinners will be thrown into the unquenchable fire. Now let's talk about where it gets a little hard to grasp, but I'm going to do the best I can to make this make sense. So follow along. In old covenant times, which is what Jesus and his disciples were studying, right? The, the new covenant hadn't, hadn't come yet. There were two main ways of purification, okay? One was by fire, Sacrifice, ceremonial burning by fire. The other one was with salt. So salt and fire, both ways to purify. Fire had totally become a metaphor for suffering and sin at this point, right? But salt had become a metaphor for remaining undefiled, for purity. That's, that was very much a practical thing that they used to preserve meat and things like that. They would salt it. But there's even more to it. Like that in Leviticus too, the ladies who have gone through the Bible study, through Gabe's study, and studied Leviticus, this is all going to be familiar to you. But Leviticus two thirteen, talking about offerings. It's going through all the various offerings, whether it's a sin offering or a guilt offering or a or a, a, a peace offering. There's all kinds of different offerings, and it's describing what each one should be. It says, "Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt." so that the salt of the covenant of your God, which will not be lacking from your grain offering, with all your offerings you shall offer salt. Now again, side note, if you have a King James, this is where I believe the King James actually gets it wrong. It translates the word grain offering in this verse as meat offering. It's not meat, it's grain offering. But this is right after the law that states, no grain offering shall contain Leaven. Okay, what's leaven? Leaven, in in the context of grain, would be yeast, okay? Which, as we know, gives us those nice, big, fluffy loaves of bread, but it also makes it very prone to spoiling. A little bit. All it takes is a tiny bit of yeast that gets in there, and all of a sudden, the whole batch is spoiled. We've heard that before, right? So what we're saying is that salt in that grain offering would prevent that from happening you're going to offer that to the lord and a little bit of salt keeps that preserved keeps it undefiled keeps it holy that idea is called a salt covenant that's what they called it then a salt covenant is a binding agreement between two parties we make a covenant that we will keep this thing whatever it is you're talking about we will keep it holy and undefiled and set apart. We won't allow it to be ruined. That's what he's talking about right here. And he goes on. Mark nine forty nine. Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. So think about what he's saying there. So salted, remaining. If you're salting something, you're keeping it from being defiled. You're keeping it from being ruined. And that's going to happen through fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. So he's saying a follower of Jesus Christ can and should remain undefiled by the world through fire, trial, and suffering. That sounds fun. Anybody else thinking, sign me up for that? That's supposed to be a good thing? But it is. He's saying that's how it happens. And that's a difficult concept. Even for them it was. So he goes on Mark goes on, um, I'm sorry, it's a hard thing to understand, but later on, later on, Paul kind of writes about that very same topic. He's writing to the church in Corinth and 1 Corinthians, and he's trying to explain to them how that works. And they're not quite as steeped in that tradition that Jesus was teaching, so they're, it's a little bit clearer. Let's read 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. I'll read it to you. You can check it out later if you want yourself. Paul says, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet only so as through the fire. He's saying, look, all these things that you're spending your time in, gold, silver, they all have value, but what are you using them for? Because it's gonna be tested. It's gonna be tested as through fire and whatever burns up is gonna burn up. And that'll show us the quality of your work. He's not saying, don't pursue any of those things, that it's bad to have any of those things. It's where's your heart? And what are you using those things for? Because it's going to be tested. He does go on to say, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. So it's not a salvation thing. But it's what are you doing with the gifts that God has blessed you with? Are you using that for kingdom work or are you using that for personal satisfaction? That's what Jesus is trying to explain here. Look, it's all going to be tried with fire. So you're going to find out what has been set aside and what's holy and what is not. In Matthew 5, Jesus says specifically that we are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? We are the salt of the earth. That means we, the body of Christ, believers in Christ, we are here to help keep the earth undefiled. And by the earth, he's not talking about the rocks and the mountains. He's talking about those other people around us. We are here for that reason. So if we spend our lives allowing ourselves to be defiled by the things of this world, and then encouraging others around us to join in that defilement, we are doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus is telling us we should do. In fact, he's telling us, We're going to be thrown into the lake of fire for doing that. There is no excuse for that. Mark 9.50, Jesus says, Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Remember that? We've heard that teaching before, and that's a, a tough turn of phrase to follow here. But he clarifies it in the second half. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Alright, it boils all that, like, I'm not sure what he's trying to say here. Okay. Have salt in yourself. Be able to keep yourself in that place where you're undefiled. Because it's a choice you get to make. I'm gonna partner with these things of the world that are gonna undef- that are going to defile me, that are gonna make me just like everyone else, or I can be intentional about keeping myself away from those things. And what that's gonna do and be at peace with one another. So when he sees the the disciples arguing back and forth, who's better, who's greater, he's going, you guys, that's exactly what I'm trying to tell you not to do. Don't fight amongst yourselves because then as we travel around doing ministry, we look just like everyone else. They'll know that we're different if we act different. He's trying to get that point across, and I know it's difficult to understand. If we go back... I think if we go back to the section of Scripture where Jesus um, actually starts this conversation, the thing that they said or did that sparked his teaching in this whole section was from 934. Remember that? But they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with, what, with one another which one of them was greatest. Okay? So that's what sparked all of this teaching. So we have to look at what he's saying here through the lens of they're discussing which one of us is the greatest. And then Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So we take those things and we can take, I think we can take a lesson away from this. And here's what it is. I think there's three main points here that I want to bring out to you. Number one, followers of Jesus Christ are not to engage in the things of the world that defile them and make them unsuitable for God's purposes. God created you for a reason. We hear scripture. God created you. He's got a plan and he's got a purpose and and for good and not for harm. We know all those things. That's the plan. But if we allow ourselves to be defiled by the things of the world, we're no longer good for being used for that purpose. And we are the only ones that get to decide if we're going to allow ourselves to be defiled. By arguing with each other about which one of them was the greatest, the disciples proved that they had not understand that concept yet. And he's trying to get it through because they need to understand it. And then the bottom line here, by engaging in prideful behavior, like excluding those who don't do it the way we do, don't think the way we think, and arguing about who's better, smarter, holier, or who has cornered the market on the real truth, we damage our witness as disciples of Christ and we cause other people to stumble. That's a problem. Guys, let me be honest with you. This is a problem in our society today, in our culture today, because there's so much information, there's so much news, there's so much worldly knowledge to be had that the the problem is so many people will plant their flag on a particular idea, a particular thought, a particular problem, and they'll, and they'll die on that mountain. They'll say, this is it, and they will scream their opinion, their viewpoint from the mountaintop. The problem is, is it's causing people around them to stumble. Because you know who else is screaming their opinion from the mountaintop? Everyone. Everybody who has access to a smart device can... Spread their opinion, right or wrong, good or bad, the way we do it, the way we don't do it, all over the world. And the problem is, is that when they also know that you're a Christ, that you're a Christian a follower of Jesus, you are damaging your witness because they're saying, "Look, that person, whether I agree with them or not, they're just like everybody else." Now, if they don't agree with you, then they go, "That crazy person over there who is also a Christian," they don't separate you from being a Christian and whatever thing you're putting out there. They just know Christians are crazy like everybody else. Or maybe it's people who do agree. Maybe they do agree with you, but it's the way you say it. It's done just like everybody else says it. It's not done with love. It's not done with an eye towards glorifying Christ in the way that we say it or the way that we do it. And what we're doing is we're damaging the witness. And that's just a churchy way of saying if somebody's curious about Christ, we are not a good example anymore. If somebody kind of knows Christ and they're right on the fence, that's not going to be the thing that gets them over the hump and makes them curious about Christ. What it'll do is drive them away. And Jesus says it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the lake. That's not what I want. Is it what you want? And I'm sorry if this message has been difficult, but there are so many people in this world out there online. I know some of you are getting ready to hit send on a post, or you already have, on something that is not glorifying to Christ. If you are a Christian, you cannot separate and say, this is my, this is my secular self and opinions, and this is my Christian self and opinions. You cannot separate those two things. So I just want to urge you, I want to plead with you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to something better, something holy, something higher, something much higher than just knowing who's right or wrong about a particular political issue or social issue of the day. It's about eternity. And I want to just urge you, To first and foremost be a disciple of Jesus Christ and a follower of Jesus Christ. Let every word that comes out of your mouth, every text that you send, everything that you say or do, be glorifying to Christ. Draw people to Christ. You're not drawing people to you because you're smarter, better, faster. Draw them to Christ, and that's where the blessing happens. So if you're having a hard time with this, and this is something that maybe makes you mad at me, I can't believe he said that, then maybe that should convict you to just pray about it a little bit. Is it really me and what I just said that is disturbing to you, or is it the fact that you're maybe a little convicted that there's some of that leaven in your life? And if that's the case, there is a response. The response to any of us should be, let's pray about it. Let's bring it to the Lord. And if he shows you something that's in your life that doesn't belong there, there's that leaven that's getting in and it's starting to make you unsuitable for what God has for you, but wholly entirely suitable for what Satan has for you. The response is to repent. You repent, you ask the Lord for forgiveness and you turn away from that and you walk forward into a life that is like what he called you to not what the world says you're good for. So let's take some time right now. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that your word is unchanging. Your word, though though very straightforward, you talk about hell. You talk about being thrown into the ocean and drown. But it's not done from a place of condemnation. It's done to show us. It's done to convict us of those places in our life where we are not honoring you, where we are not reflecting you, where we are not being ambassadors of you to this world. And where have we have allowed ourselves to become just like the world and thus not set apart, not holy? Lord, you say that we are holy. You say that we are a royal priesthood. You say that we are chosen. You say that you have a plan for us and a purpose for us, and it's for good, and you have eternal life promised for us. All of these things, that's who you say we are. So, Father, I repent of anything that I have done that does not line up with who you say I am. And, Lord, I especially repent of those things that I have done that have caused someone else to stumble, who have caused someone else to say, yeah, maybe I don't. Maybe I don't want Jesus in my life because those people are just like everyone else, or worse yet, worse than everyone else. So, Lord, I ask you right now, and I'm going to ask you here in-house, be bold enough, be truthful enough, and say, Lord, show me those places in my life where I have allowed this to happen. Show me that leaven in my life that's starting to spoil the whole batch. Show me the things I need to repent of and set aside. And Lord, I promise to be faithful to what you hear because I want your path. I don't want the path. This world tells us that there are Thousands, countless, endless paths to get where we want to go. Your word tells us there's only one path, and that's the path I want to be on. It's not anything goes, it's what you say and what you teach. That's the way, and that's what I want. So, Father, I praise you for new chances, I praise you for forgiveness, I praise you for redemption. I praise you this day and every day in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna take communion together right now, but before we do, and I'll explain how it goes. I I think we all know how it works here, but I'll explain it in just a second. But here's what I want you to do. I don't want you just to jump up. I want you to think about what we just prayed about. And if the Lord has shown you something that you've allowed to creep into your life that does not belong there, I don't want you to just bounce up, pop up, and take communion. Stay there for a moment. Listen to worship. We have prayer team in the back. Look for somebody with a lanyard. They'll pray with you if you just need some help understanding those things and repenting of those things. But let's stay in our seats until... We have identified those things that the Lord is showing. Maybe there's nothing, and that's a blessed place to be. But if he's shown you something, repent of it. Repent of it and set it aside, and then step forward and take communion, because that's how we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. If we know there's sin in our life and we're refusing to set it aside, we're refusing to turn away from it, and then we take communion, we're thanking Jesus for a gift he gave us that we never will open. That's not the point. So if you need to sit there for a few minutes before you move about and take communion, do that. Otherwise, let's just worship and praise him together. Amen? So we have communion at the crosses as juice and crackers. You can serve yourself at either cross station if you want. Up front here, Gabe and I have wine, and we would serve you there. If you want to be served, just line up right here. But again, let's just take all the time we need to make sure that our heart is right and then celebrate together. Thank you, church.